A special thanks goes out to the folks at Anchor.fm for bringing you this podcast. Hello, everyone. Today, another short story by the author John Isaac Jones. I'm Tom Zania, and this is Tom Read Your Story. Coming to you almost live, it's time once again for Tom Reads Your Story, the number one spoken word podcast on the web for audiobooks, social media posts, current events, and just plain whatever. So let's start the show. For the next half hour, I'll be your host. I'm voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zanian. Do you need a good professional sound for your podcast? I'm Tom Zania, voice actor and podcast host of Tom Reads Your Story. I can give you the sound you're looking for for your podcast intros and advertisements at the price and turnaround you need. So don't hesitate and send me a message at TomReadYourStory at Yahoo.com. And we are back. Welcome back, everyone. I'm glad you're here. Today, another short story by John Isaac Jones. This is kind of a dark comedy, and it's called Blood on the Salad. Yeah, you heard that right. Blood on the Salad. Uh, Not the best-reviewed book I've ever read, but uh, it's got some humor in it. It's got some characters in it. And I'm going to play all four chapters today. It's about a 35 to 37 minute episode here at Tom Reads Your Story. And that's basically it. Let's start out with chapter one. Chapter one, the big event. The annual Alabama Businessmen's Charity Ball in Montgomery was the state's premier social event every year. Anybody who was anybody, whether politician, businessman, civic leader, or other such notable, was well aware that an appearance at the big blowout each year was integral to their standing in the state's business and political hierarchy. Not only would there be power brokers on hand to advance the political futures of the deserving, but there would be opportunities to open new doors and make some new deals, big deals. Only 500 people were invited, and with a $10,000 per plate price tag, it was designed to raise more than $5 million for state charities every year. As one might suspect, the state's biggest movers and shakers would be in attendance. This year, in 1958, the big event was due to be held at the Rich Plaza Hotel on Montgomery's trendy west side. And, as the menu printer in the hotel's kitchen, I was caught up in the pressure to put the hotel's best foot forward for the big event. I will always remember the afternoon before the big banquet when Mr. Horgan, the kitchen manager, called me aside. Now, Jimmy, he began in his thick English accent, you know the push is on to make a success of the big banquet tonight. I'm expecting tonight's dinner menu to be absolutely letter perfect. A correct date, no mix-ups of desserts or appetizers, and no misspellings. I mean absolutely no misspellings. Remember, asparagus is spelled A-S-P-A-R-A. 
G-U-S. Are you with me? Yes, Mr. Horgan, I replied. Someone who is paying $10,000 for a meal should not have to read a menu that has misspelled words. Are you with me? Yes, Mr. Horgan, I said. The phone rang. Give me just a minute, he said, picking up the phone. As the kitchen manager chatted on the phone, I glanced over at my friend Azalea, the salad woman who was preparing salads for the big event. In front of her, there were three two-by-two-by-four-foot plastic tubs, which would be filled with lettuce, tomatoes, onions, radishes, carrots, and cucumbers, then tossed together. Behind her, I could see two huge containers of washed and trimmed lettuce heads waiting to be chopped up. To the side of the adjacent counter, there was a bushel of tomatoes, a large sack of onions, and four market baskets filled with radishes and cucumbers awaiting Azalea's attention, not to mention a bushel basket full of carrots sitting in the sink, which, as of yet, had not been washed. As I waited for Mr. Horgan, I watched Azalea chop and dice onions. As I watched, she glanced up from her work. I winked at her. Hey, baby, she said, smiling and returning my wink. Azalea, a tall, thin, middle-aged black woman with a short leg who always wore her hair tied up in a bundle, bound with a red cloth, was usually half drunk while at work. The powers that be didn't say anything about her nipping on the job. They probably couldn't get anybody else to work as cheaply. I liked Azalea. She had been my friend since I gave her a ride home one night during a rain. As I watched her work, I recalled the lectures she had received from Mr. Horgan about making a proper salad. A good salad is a fresh salad, he would say. Tomatoes should taste like tomatoes, and onions should taste like onions. If you prepare a salad, then put it in the cooler for an hour. It's not really fresh, and culinary tests have shown that it loses 30% of its taste. A salad should be served immediately after it is prepared. As I watched, I knew Azalea was working diligently to meet Mr. Horgan's standards for a proper salad. Finally, Mr. Horgan hung up the phone, then turned immediately to Mrs. Halifax, the middle-aged, one-armed woman who had an elevated desk adjacent to his. She was the cashier. Mrs. Halifax, Mr. Horgan said. Can you get check number 261? I watched as Mrs. Halifax turned to the stack of dinner checks in front of her, then, with her good arm, began to rifle through them. Seconds later, unable to find the designated check in one stack, she used her artificial arm to pull another stack closer for examination. As she did, there was a whirring sound from the small electric motor inside the artificial appendage and the faint squeal of cables and pulleys as the arm's mechanism moved. Today, Mrs. Halifax was wearing a short-sleeved dress, and on such days you could see the cables moving across the pulleys and wheels in her prosthetic. Mrs. Halifax, Mr. Horgan said impatiently, I'm waiting for check 261. Just a moment, please, she replied as the sound of the cables and pulleys grew louder. Several times, Mr. Horgan had asked Mrs. Halifax to wear long-sleeved dresses to hide the public display of the artificial arms mechanism, but she refused, claiming a long sleeve was too hot for her real arm. In that case, Mr. Horgan said she must never go into the dining area. 
Nobody wants to eat their food while listening to the mechanical sounds of your prosthetic, he said. As always, in the kitchen at the Rich Plaza Hotel, all traces of human dignity were sacrificed for the sake of appearance. Moments later, with her real arm, she withdrew check 261 and passed it to Mr. Horgan. Quickly, he made a note on the check, handed it back to Mrs. Halifax, then he turned back to me. Now, uh, where were we, Jimmy? He said absently. Oh, yes. We were talking about a perfectly printed dinner menu. When I was kitchen manager at the Oxford Berkshire Manor in London, we served Queen Elizabeth no less than seven times. Each and every time, before Her Royal Highness saw the day's menu, it was proofread by no less than the Chancellor of Languages at Stratford University. As a man who has served some of the finest nobility in Europe, I must tell you, in the hotel-restaurant business, the ambiance, the environment within which the guests will be consuming their food, is just as important as the food itself. He stopped. Are you with me? Yes, Mr. Horgan, I replied. Then he turned to a stack of papers on his desk, searched through them, then withdrew one. Here is the menu for tonight's big banquet, he said, handing the paper to me. I'm going to be very busy tonight, so I can't spend a lot of time making corrections. That's why I'm depending on you to give me the best menu of your life. I glanced at the paper. Incidentally, he said, braised short ribs is one of the entrees tonight. Braised is spelled B-R-A-I-S-E-D, not B-R-A-Z-E-D. Be sure to get that correct. Yes, Mr. Horgan. Now bring me back a perfect menu for tonight's big banquet, he said, patting me on the shoulder. Yes, Mr. Horgan, I said. With that, I stood up and started walking across the kitchen floor to the stock room, where the press was located. As I passed the entree section, Johnny, the cross-eyed cook, called to me. Due to his crossed eyes, he couldn't always tell the difference between brown and dark gravy. Jimmy, Johnny said, can you help me for a second? I stepped over to the entree section where I saw Johnny holding a dinner plate and about to dip gravy onto the mashed potatoes. Is the brown gravy on the left or right? I glanced down at the two huge pots of gravy. Dark is on the right, brown is on the left, I said. Thanks, he said, ladling a dollop of dark gravy from the pot on the right onto the mashed potatoes, then sliding the plate onto the to-be-served platform. Johnny smiled, his right eye looking directly at me, but his left eye appeared to be looking at the ceiling. Thanks. You're welcome, Johnny, I replied. Chapter 2 me and my press. The little hand-cranked press I used to print the menus was located in the stockroom. Giant barrels of flour and 50-gallon drums of cooking oil had been moved to make room for me and my little press on one of the lower shelves in the stockroom. 
The other trappings of my operation, a letter stand, a spindle for spelling words, as well as ink and paper, were scattered around the little press. It wasn't a bad job. The work paid $27 a week and included a free meal. Five days a week, I attended classes at Sydney Lanier High and came to work every afternoon to print the next day's menus. On Saturdays, I came in to print that day's and Sunday's dinner menus. It was a great after-school job for a 17-year-old like me. Although the hotel was billed as the ritziest stay in Montgomery, the kitchen was run on a shoestring. All of the hotel employees were paid less than minimum wage. Despite the lack of money, hotel management did everything in their power to produce an image of exclusivity and good taste. The napkins had to be folded just so. All the servers were required to wear crisp white uniforms, and all of the table linen was inspected by Mr. Horgan himself. For my part, I learned early on that the management was too cheap to buy more letters for my printing. Since E is the most frequently used letter in the alphabet, I feared seeing the word vegetable or beets on the menu because E's were as rare as hen's teeth. Once, when sauerkraut and frankfurters appeared on the menu, I didn't have any U's, so I spelled the word frankfarters. Frankfarters! Frankfarters! Mr. Horgan had said in shocked disbelief when he saw the proof. I understand you have a shortage of letters, but frankfarters? Of all the words you could have improvised, that's the worst. A word like that puts people off their food. If you don't have any use, then spell the word Frankforter. True, it is spelled incorrectly, but that is much more pleasant than Frankforter. Any time you have to improvise, remember, you must always keep the guest's palate in mind. So I sat down on the stool in front of the press and sat about the task of building the menu for the big banquet. As I worked, directly behind me, I could hear Doyle, the dishwasher, unloading the dishwashing machine. Doyle was a mid-sixties black man with a sunken face, slightly bent over, and always wore one of those little white paper hats that kitchen personnel used to prevent hair from falling into food. Doyle's job was to load and unload the dishwasher and keep the kitchen floor clean. After I had worked for some twenty minutes, Chlorine, the cakes and pies woman, waddled into the stockroom. Chlorine was a short, squat black woman in her late fifties with graying hair who always wore glasses and an apron. She never washed her hands, wiping them instead on her apron, then proceeded to the next task. When she entered the stockroom, she went straight to Doyle. Now I'm going to pull those pie racks out, she said and I want you to mop the floor back there. It ain't been mopped in a month. The old black man solemnly shook his head. Not my job, he replied. Well, you're going to make it your job, Chlorine said, pulling out the five pie racks, huge pastry racks on wheels, which contained yesterday's biscuits as well as 20 to 30 freshly baked apple, peach, cherry, and blueberry pies. That floor is filthy. Not my job. Doyle said again. Chlorine's face screwed up in anger. Now you gonna mop that floor, she said. If you don't, 
you ain't going to have no manhoods. Do you hear me? Then, to prove her point, she reached into one of the racks and took out two hard day-old biscuits. You see these? Chlorine said, holding forth the two biscuits one at a time for Doyle to see. Number one, she said, holding up one biscuit. And number two, she said, holding up the other. If you don't mop that floor, this is what's going to happen to your manhoods. Then, holding the biscuits over a trash can, Chlorine slowly crushed them one at a time with her bare hand into a hundred smaller pieces. Doyle grimaced as he watched the crumpled pieces of old biscuit stream from her hand and into the waiting garbage can. Having made her point, Chlorine peered at Doyle. Now you understand me? she asked. Doyle, his nose in the air, shook his head defiantly. Tell you what, Chlorine said. I'm going back to the floor, and when I get back, this floor better be mopped. If it's not, your manhoods are going to be like them old biscuits. Then she turned and waddled out of the stockroom, back to the kitchen floor. Of the entire kitchen staff, there were only three white people, me, Mr. Horgan, and Mrs. Halifax, the one-armed woman. All of the others were black, and in the pecking order among them, Chlorine was at the top of the heap. Before she came to work in the kitchen, she had been employed as a housekeeper at the rich family mansion on Montgomery's exclusive South Side for more than 20 years. In fact, she had been Mr. Rich's nanny when he was a young boy and a teenager and was considered part of the family. As a result, she had inside pull with the hotel owner that no one else had. If Mr. Rich needed a special job done, he would call on Chlorine. He trusted her and everything she did. Not even Johnny, the cross-eyed cook who was usually the de facto kitchen head when Mr. Horgan wasn't around wouldn't cross swords with Chlorine. After he had hired Mr. Horgan for the kitchen manager's job some six months earlier, Mr. Rich had come back to the stockroom one afternoon and consulted Chlorine about his decision. What do you think about the new kitchen manager? He asked. Oh, he seems like a nice man, she said. Looks like he gets along with everybody. Do you think he's honest? Mr. Rich asked. Yeah, she replied. He talks a lot in that funny accent, but he seems to be fair with everybody. Mr. Rich pursed his lips. I'm not sure about him, he said thoughtfully. Something tells me I should have hired the Frenchman. Thirty minutes later, I had completed the day's build and printed off a proof of the day's menu. I read through it several times for errors and, finally satisfied it was optimal, I started out of the stockroom back to Mr. Horgan's desk with proof in hand. As always, he was on the phone, so I had to wait. As I waited, I turned my attention to Azalea to determine her progress on the salads. Now two of the three giant plastic tubs were filled with lettuce, tomatoes, radishes, onions, and cucumbers waiting to be tossed. By now, Azalea had washed and cut the tops of the carrots and was slicing them into small edible pieces. 
She was an artist with a knife. Once a carrot was taken from the bin and placed on the cutting surface, her hand was a blur as the carrot was instantly reduced to perfectly thin slices. I turned back to Mr. Horgan, but he was still on the phone, chatting away about the time he had served the Prince of Wales at some famous hotel in London. Damn, Azalea said suddenly. At the sound of the epithet, I turned to her. She had hit her thumb with the knife and sliced a small chunk of flesh out of the side. She grimaced, then grabbed the thumb with the other hand to staunch the bleeding. Then she turned to me. Jimmy, she said, will you get that box of bandage strips out from under the sink? I knew she kept a small first aid kit under the sink for such occasions, so I got up, went to the sink, and retrieved the first aid kit. Upon opening it, I took out a box of adhesive strips. Now, I'm going to hold my thumb out, and I want you to put a bandage on it for me. As instructed, I took one of the strips, removed the paper covering, and while Azalea held her wounded thumb, I applied the bandage. Then she waited. As we watched, more blood oozed out from around the edges of the bandage. I'm going to need another one, she said. So, proffering the injured thumb as before, I applied another bandage. We waited again, but seconds later, more blood appeared and I applied a third bandage. No sooner was the third bandage applied when more blood appeared and I applied the fourth bandage. Over the next five minutes, I applied more and more bandages. By the time the bleeding had stopped, Azalea had a total of 13 adhesive strips bound to her injured thumb. The wad of bandages was as big as a small lemon. Thank you so much, baby, she said. Now Azalea was ready to work again. I put the box of adhesive strips back into the first aid kit and returned it under the sink. By now, Mr. Horgan was off the phone and started to proofread the day's dinner menu. I waited patiently. A perfect menu, Mr. Horgan said finally. Now, print them off and return them to me. I'll have the servers place them in the folders for our guests. With that, I turned and headed back to the stockroom to print off the menus. As I passed the salad bar, Azalea, with a huge wad of adhesive bandages on her thumb, was mixing ingredients to make the tossed salads. Back at my little printing press, I set about printing the menus. I applied the ink, making sure to get it perfectly uniform across the rollers, then began feeding paper into the tray and turning the crank to print one menu at a time. As I printed the menus, I saw chlorine come waddling back into the stockroom. Upon seeing that the floor area where the pie racks were stored was still not mopped, I knew she would be furious. When she saw the floor had not been mopped, she went straight to Doyle. He was mopping the area at the side of the dishwasher. Doyle, she shouted angrily. Didn't I tell you to mop that floor? Doyle stopped, then placed the mop in the mop bucket and leaned on the handle. Not my job, he replied. There was a tiger-like fury in her face. You listen to me, she said. 
Get over there and mop that floor, or you ain't going to have no manhoods. Doyle shook his head calmly. Then, with an angry scowl, Chlorine closed in. You going to mop that floor? She asked. Not my job, Doyle said. Chlorine moved in closer. Now she was in his face, wagging her finger. Get over there and mop that floor. Not my job, he said, still leaning on the mop handle and watching her finger wag back and forth. Suddenly, she thrust her hand down the front of Doyle's pants and grabbed his privates in a tight grasp. Instantly, Doyle's face screwed up in a knot of searing pain. For some reason, Doyle didn't raise a hand to stop her. He stoically grasped the mop handle with one hand, then the other, to withstand the pain. It was as if the mop handle was his security blanket, so to speak and he could handle anything as long as he had that mop handle in hand. I could see the veins in Doyle's hands bulging as he squeezed the mop handle with all his might. Chlorine peered sadistically into his eyes. Oh, Doyle said finally, that hurts. I meant for it to hurt, Chlorine said. Then, from the expression on her face, I could see that she was now applying further, harder pressure. Now, she asked again, are you going to mop that floor? From the grimace on Doyle's face, I could tell he was quickly withering under the pressure. Now he had reached his limit. He could take no more. I'll mop! He screamed suddenly. I'll mop! I'll mop! Chlorine, Gritting her teeth in furious anger, squeezed his testicles with more and more pressure. And you going to mop good, right? I'll mop! Doyle screamed again in pain. I'll mop good! He was squeezing the mop handle for dear life. His eyes were bulging as big as saucers with the agonizing pain. That's better, Chlorine said slowly removing her hand from the front of his pants. Instantly, Doyle set about mopping the floor area where the Pyrax were stored. As he worked, Chlorine watched. Some ten minutes later, the floor under the Pyrax was clean and Chlorine shoved the Pyrax one by one back into the clean space. Then she turned back to Doyle. You got off easy that time, she said. You may not be so lucky next time. Then she turned and started back out of the stockroom when someone suddenly called her name. Chlorine, the voice called. Instantly, both Chlorine and I recognized Mr. Rich's voice. We turned and saw the hotel owner standing at the stockroom entrance. Yes, sir, Chlorine replied. Can you come help me? Yes, sir, she replied. Then she started waddling out of the stockroom behind the hotel owner toward the kitchen floor. Now, I knew that if Mr. Rich had come back to the stockroom looking for chlorine, there was trouble in the wind somewhere on the kitchen floor. So, once chlorine started out of the stockroom behind Mr. Rich, I knew I had to investigate.
I knew this was going to be big, really big. Chapter 3 Lost Bandage Moments later, when Mr. Rich, Chlorine, and I reached the kitchen floor, all of the staff, including Johnny, the cross-eyed cook, was gathered around the salad section. Meanwhile, waiting at the entrance into the dining room were twenty servers, all young black men decked out in their crisp white uniforms and black ties, waiting to begin serving salads. Once we joined the group, Mr. Rich turned to Mr. Horgan. All right, Robert, Mr. Rich said. Tell Chlorine what happened. Well, you see, Chlorine, Mr. Horgan started. Azalea cut her thumb while preparing salads for tonight's banquet and applied a quite large bundle of adhesive strips to the wounded appendage. Then, while she was tossing all of the ingredients together, she lost the bundle of bandages somewhere in the salad. So what can I do? I want you to go through the salad and try to find the wad of bandages, Mr. Rich said. Which tub is it in? We're not sure, said Mr. Rich. You'll have to search all three. What does it look like? It's twelve or thirteen plastic strips all balled together with gauze inside, Mr. Horgan said. It will be bloody and covered in gooey pus. Chlorine peered at the salad. She noticed blood on the side of one tub and specks of blood on some of the lettuce and carrots. Why is there blood on the salad? she asked. When Azalea lost the bandage, Mr. Horgan explained, she had an open wound again, and upon withdrawing the wounded appendage from the tub, some blood fell on the salad. Chlorine hesitated. We should hurry, Mr. Rich said. We start serving in ten minutes. So, without further ado, Chlorine started searching through the three plastic tubs of salad. The entire kitchen held its breath as Chlorine ran her unclean hands through the first tub of salad. Just as she was about to finish the first tub, she paused as if she had found something. But when she withdrew the object, it was an uncut radish. Then she started on tub number two, raking her hands through the lettuce, tomatoes, radishes, and onions, but again found nothing resembling a gooey, bloody wad of used medical bandages. Finally, she started through the third tub, but after several minutes of searching, she came up with nothing. You didn't find anything? Mr. Rich asked. No, sir, she said. Not a thing. And you checked very closely? Yes, sir, she said. The hotel owner nodded his head with satisfaction. Okay, he said. That's all I need to know. The kitchen staff waited for him to make a decision. First, Mr. Rich examined the tub, which had blood on the side. Hand me a cloth, he said. Mr. Horgan handed a cloth to the hotel owner. Mr. Rich wiped the blood off the side of the tub, then he started picking out individual pieces of salad that had specks of blood and threw them aside. Finally, he examined the other tubs closely. After another minute, he pursed his lips with satisfaction. It's a beautiful salad, he declared. Serve it, 
Then he motioned toward the waiting servers to come forward and start serving the salads. Wait, Mr. Horgan said, motioning for the servers to stop. You can't be serious. Somewhere in that salad is a bloody, gooey wad of medical bandages. Whoever is unlucky enough to receive it shall certainly gag upon the moment of discovery. We must consider the palate of each and every diner. We aren't running a finishing school here. This is a restaurant, Mr. Rich said. We cannot have a banquet without a salad. He motioned for the servers to come forward. Serve the salads, he said again, as if he were a military general ordering his troops to charge. Wait, Mr. Horgan said. This is atrocious. It is the very height of poor taste. I hired on here because I felt you believed in all of the principles of good taste. Serve the salad, Mr. Rich said for the third time. I'm the owner of this hotel. Instantly, the servers stepped forward and began dipping salad out of the tubs and placing them on trays. For a moment, Mr. Horgan stared at Mr. Rich in sheer disbelief. Then he swooned and fainted on the kitchen floor. Instantly, Mr. Rich pushed a button on the side of the wall. He was calling security. Now, Mr. Rich said, addressing the gathered kitchen staff, are we all here? Where's Doyle? Right here, Mr. Rich, Doyle answered from the rear of the crowd. Johnny? Jimmy? Chlorine? Each of us answered our presence in turn. All of you raise your right hands, Mr. Rich said. I knew we were about to take the hotel's oath of allegiance. Mr. Rich glanced through the crowd to see if all hands were raised. Mrs. Halifax, he said, raise your right hand. I don't have a right hand, she said. Then raise the left, the hotel owner replied. Mrs. Halifax raised her good hand. Now, repeat after me, Mr. Rich said. I solemnly swear that I will never tell anyone about what happened here today. Each kitchen employee, right hands raised reverently, except for Mrs. Halifax, repeated the hotel owner's words. If I do, Mr. Rich continued, I will die and burn in hell for all eternity. Each kitchen employee repeated Mr. Rich's words. I knew that anyone who refused to say the words would be fired on the spot. I wanted to keep my job, so I, along with all of the others, repeated the words as instructed. Once the kitchen staff had promised to never mention the incident, two hotel security guards appeared. You called Mr. Rich? asked one of the guards. Yes, the hotel owner replied, pointing to Mr. Horgan. Go through his desk and remove all of his personal belongings, he said. When he wakes up, tell him he's fired and escort him off the premises. Yes, sir, the security guard replied. All right, everybody get back to work, Mr. Rich ordered. We're having a banquet here tonight. Now, all problems solved and satisfied the kitchen was running properly again, Mr. Rich turned and started out of the kitchen back to his office in the hotel lobby. As he walked, he shook his head with indecision. I knew I should have hired the Frenchman, he said to no one in particular. I just knew it. Moments later, he disappeared into the hotel lobby.
Meanwhile, on the serving line at the salad section, there was a loud clinking of glass on glass and the sound of bowl bottoms being dragged across metal surfaces as the servers delivered the salads from the kitchen to the honored guests in the dining room. Chapter 4. Afterward. The following day in the local newspaper, a glowing report stated that this year's Alabama Businessmen's Charity Ball had been a rousing success. The greatest gala ever, proclaimed the article. The event had brought in just over $5 million for state charities, and attendants said they could hardly wait for next year's event. When the reporter asked guests about the quality of the food and service, all respondents answered in the positive. One attendee, the wife of a state senator, complained that she had received brown gravy rather than dark gravy on her mashed potatoes. But other than that, the food and service was excellent. The food and service at the Rich Plaza is the best in the state, the woman concluded. I could not have been happier. In the preparation of food for served guests, there is usually an unstated veil of trust that promises the preparer will deliver clean, quality morsels for each and every guest's consumption. In some cases, that trust is violated. I think you could say, this was such a case. Many times, I've wondered what the diner's reaction was when, upon relishing their current bite of salad, glanced into their salad bowl and spied a gooey, bloody ball of bandage strips among the lettuce, tomatoes, and onions. Did they push the offending bowl aside and calmly continue with the meal? Or was the diner some weak stomach milk toast who, upon seeing the bandages, left the table, went to the restroom to vomit, then returned to continue their meal? Who knows? One thing was for sure. Whoever was served the ball of bandages never mentioned it. If I had been the diner unlucky enough to receive the offending package, I would have probably rather than create a commotion and spoil the festive spirit of the occasion, pushed the dish aside and continued with the meal. What would you have done? The End And that was Blood on the Salad. Now, I, you're free to comment, if you wish. Uh, you can send a message, or you can email me at TomReadYourStory at yahoo.com I appreciate you coming to listen today because that brings us to the end of yet another episode of Tom Read Your Story. Portions were pre-recorded. Please tell your friends if you enjoyed your visit today because we're always looking for new ones. Thanks Anchor.fm for this opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. Until next time, take care everyone. Bye now. This is Tom Zania. For more information on my availability for your e-learning, commercial, or audiobook project, visit my website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. We hope you visit us again real soon for another episode of Tom Reads Your Story.